This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Heading into spring, I've been spending a lot of time pondering, analyzing, and debating something extremely important to men, and even many women, and that's whether a new driver would improve my golf game. I would say I'm somewhere between embarrassing and appalling at golf, but man, do I love it. And all my buddies show up with these epic flash, big Maverick birther drivers, and I can't help but feel like they've got this massive advantage on me and my persimmons. It's Ryan, and at our Faith and Family Mortgage Team, we're proud to have a pretty special advantage ourselves, and one that can be a big deal for you. Our team is an arm of a bigger company who is a direct lender, which means our company uses its own money and makes its own decisions within its own walls. There's no middleman, and this advantage often allows us to get you a better rate, saving monthly and lifelong money on a refinance or new home purchase. We're much better at mortgages than I am at golf. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. When it comes to the Holy Land, there's plenty of hurt. With every terrorist incident, we see more hate. What about hope? Well, coming up, you're gonna enjoy a sneak preview of an innovative new documentary titled Hope in the Holy Land. It's the film that Christians, Jews, and Palestinians respect. Get the uh, director's cut with lots of behind the scenes stories, and some of them are actually kind of humorous. This is The Land and the Book with Israel expert, Dr. Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Geiger. Grateful to connect, Charlie, and to take a quick look at what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, John, it's always fun being back with you, and you're right, there's a lot happening in the Middle East. Well, just over a week ago, for example, Israel experienced the largest civilian mass casualty event in the nation's history, as 45 children and adults were crushed to death in a panicked stampede, while another 150 were injured. What caused the tragedy, Charlie, and what, what impact is it having on the country? The basic cause of the tragedy was a gathering of up to 100,000 ultra-Orthodox Jews at Mount Maron in northern Israel for the annual Lagba Omer Festival. This is the one day between Passover and Shavuot, Pentecost, when religious Jews are allowed to celebrate. Supposedly, it's also a day when a plague ended that killed nearly a quarter million followers of Rabbi Akiva in the distant past. Well, Mount Moron is also where the tomb of Rabbi Shimron, a Talmudic scholar who wrote the main work on Kabbalah or Jewish mysticism, is buried. So during this celebration, all these crowds gather to uh, celebrate, to uh, rejoice. But unfortunately, as the crowd uh, rushed down a a narrow metal walkway that was somewhat of a bottleneck in the place, uh, some individuals slipped or were pushed by the surging crowd and fell. Well, those in the back kept pushing forward as more and more people became trapped underfoot. One person described it as a human avalanche. The event shocked the nation. It resulted in a great deal of finger pointing that is still going on. The spot where the tragedy happened has been identified as a dangerous choke point for decades, but nothing was ever done to correct it. Hmm. And the root of the problem, John, is the relationship between the ultra-Orthodox and the government. The government's being faulted for allowing so many to gather at the site, but just hours before the tragedy, Israel's interior minister, who is an ultra-Orthodox Jew, 
bragged that he had successfully prevented health ministry officials from limiting the number of attendees over COVID fears. The ultra-Orthodox have refused to follow COVID regulations. They oppose serving in the army or teaching required education subjects in their schools. And in one sense, they become a law unto themselves. What happens now will be determined in part on what the next government looks like. A commission is going to be established to determine exactly what happened and to recommend needed changes. Uh, No doubt one recommendation will be the need to bring events like this under tighter control and regulation, but that'll be easier said than done. For decades, the ultra-Orthodox have been a crucial part of forming a working coalition in the Knesset, and that allowed them to exert ever greater influence and to flaunt regulations with relative impunity. One thing is sure. Israel's next government will need to address the growing chasm between secular Israelis and the ultra-Orthodox if they hope to prevent future tragedies like this from happening. Charlie, it seems to me this uh, incident might weaken the position of the ultra-Orthodox in government. Is that true or is that not true? It has that potential. However, it it always comes back to the formula. You need 61 uh, members of the Knesset to form a government. If they're required to form the next government, uh, that gives them the influence, even if they are despised by many Hmm. for their lack of cooperation. Well, speaking of a new government, Prime Minister Netanyahu's mandate to form a new coalition officially expired this uh, past Tuesday night at midnight. So what happened, Charlie? Well, and indeed, this relates just to what you said, because this is the one thing that could make a change in the power of the ultra-Orthodox. Despite numerous attempts, Netanyahu was unable to cobble together a coalition in the allotted time, though technically he could have asked for two additional weeks to continue trying to form a coalition. It became obvious that wasn't going to happen, so he turned the mandate back to President Rivlin. And uh, Lapid's party received the second largest number of seats in the Knesset, so uh, he's been given the mandate to try and form a government. But in an interesting twist, it appears as if Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett have reached an agreement. Uh, They're going to unite together and have Naftali Bennett serve as prime minister for the first two years of a coalition, with Lapid then taking over as prime minister for the remaining time. Now, here's how that all played out. Netanyahu needed to have Bennett join his coalition. But even then, the coalition wouldn't have had enough votes for a majority in the Knesset. To make the numbers work, they also needed the support of the Islamist Ra'am party led by Mansour Abbas. Uh, He agreed to support Netanyahu from outside the coalition in exchange for advancing legislative priorities for his constituents. However, the far-right religious Zionism party, with its seven seats, said they wouldn't join Netanyahu's coalition if it relied on Ra'am's support. So in the end, Netanyahu fell short. Uh, Some of these people were so intent on their ideology that they couldn't join together for a coalition. Hmm. Now, at the same time, Naftali Bennett used his role as kingmaker to get both Netanyahu and Lapid to offer him a rotating role as prime minister in exchange for his party's support. Well, when it became clear Netanyahu wasn't going to cobble together enough seats to form a government, Bennett sided with Lapid. Lapid still needs to pull together groups from the right, the center, and the left. And that means this next government, if it gets formed, could be inherently unstable from the start. But at least right now, it looks like Israel won't be heading to new elections in the immediate future. And for the first time in a long time, the government will be led by someone other than Benjamin Netanyahu. Charlie, uh, just an aside here, does anybody ever say in Israel, maybe we should simplify things so we don't have these extended dramas? I'm just asking. 
Uh, they say it all the time. However, that would also mean that they might lose power. So everyone knows how to play the game, and there's much talk but little action. It's the land in the book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And you know, Charlie, the other election that we were watching was the Palestinian legislative election. As you predicted two weeks ago, Palestinian Authority President Abbas canceled the election, blaming Israel, of course. What impact will his decision have on the Palestinians and on prospects for peace with the Palestinians and Israel? Yeah, the decision wasn't unexpected, but there has been an outcry across the Palestinian political spectrum. Numerous parties and politicians had called on Abbas not to cancel the election, and they're upset. By blaming Israel, Abbas sought to tamp down criticism. He accused those still pushing for elections of abandoning the future Palestinian capital to the Jews. In other words, he was saying that anyone still wanting elections had really accepted Israel's claims to Jerusalem. That makes no sense, but that's the argument he's using. Now, in terms of the impact it's going to have on the Palestinians, well, it certainly signals the end of the latest attempt at reconciliation between Fatah and Hamas. Hamas denounced the decision and called it a coup against the agreements they'd reached with Fatah. Following the cancellation of elections, Abbas declared a 30-day state of emergency. Now, it's not clear if this is related to unrest over the postponement of the elections or to the pandemic or to a combination of both. Uh, I don't see the decision, though, of canceling elections of having a major impact on peace talks between Israel and the Palestinians because, frankly, prospects for peace were already quite slim. Short term, there could be an increase in attacks on Israelis in the West Bank and clashes between Israel and Hamas along the Gaza border. There could also be infighting between the different Palestinian factions. Abbas is 85. He's not in the best of health. He may still be able to remain in control for now, but the calls for replacing him and for holding new elections are bound to increase in the weeks and months ahead. Well, a new medical device company in Israel called IceCure has developed a technology to destroy cancerous breast tumors without invasive surgery. What are the details surrounding this latest innovation from Amazing Israel, Charlie? Well, yeah, staffed with graduates of the Technion, Israel's Institute of Technology, this new company is using technology to provide a new approach to fight breast cancer. They've developed a technology they call ProSense. It's a non-surgical, less invasive alternative to breast cancer surgery. The technique uses cryoablation technology that involves inserting a probe into the tumor and using liquid nitrogen to freeze it. The technique destroys the tumor without impacting the surrounding healthy tissue. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has classified the technology as a, quote, breakthrough device. Uh, In trials conducted in 19 hospitals and medical centers across the U.S., the technology has been shown to be 100% safe, with 95% of the doctors and patients satisfied with the cosmetic results. Three-quarters of the patients were able to resume their daily lives within 48 hours of the procedure. Hmm. This new technology from Amazing Israel could be the first effective non-surgical treatment option for patients with early detection of breast cancer. And hopefully, this will make a positive impact on a cancer that claims up to 700,000 lives every year. That's a great report, Charlie. Thanks for all your work in bringing us today's current events segment. We're looking forward to a great program today, including a discussion about hope in the Holy Land. There's plenty of hurt. What about the hope? Also, questions and answers and Charlie's devotional, The Saddest Day in Ezekiel's Life. That's all to come and much more on today's edition of The Land and the Book.
When it comes to the Holy Land, there's plenty of hurt. With every terrorist incident, we see more hate. But what about hope? Up next on The Land and the Book, you're going to enjoy a sneak preview of an innovative new documentary titled Hope in the Holy Land. It's a film that Christians, Jews, and Palestinians respect. You'll get the, uh, I guess I'd call it, director's cut version with lots of behind-the-scenes stories. I'm John Geiger, thanking you for connecting with us here at The Land and the Book. Let's meet today's guests. Todd Moorhead is an avid surfer from Southern California. I like him already. He's also a believer with a deep love for Israel, but he admits to having wrestled in the past with what I would call an unsettling indifference. So along with his friend and ours, Justin Crone, uh, he sets off on a journey across the Holy Land to confront his indifference toward the Palestinians and to search for the deeper truths behind one of the most perplexing and polarizing conflicts in the world. Of course, this is all being recorded on multiple cameras and microphones, and along the way, he discovers the painful struggles of Jews, Muslims, and Christians on both sides of the conflict. The result is a film which is produced by co-creator Justin Crone. Uh, Justin serves with Chosen People Ministries and is a longtime friend of the land of the book. We're really excited to have you guys together with us today. Todd's on the phone, so we'll welcome him first, asking, Todd, what's one funny thing that happened as you guys shot this film in Israel? Oh, man, one funny thing. I think we had a lot of funny things, but I'm the funny thing that that people just like to laugh at my idiosyncrasies and my needing to go to the bathroom wherever I go in Israel. Um, our, our director, he came up with this line, you know, you know, the Palestinian chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Mm-hmm. Well, he says from the river to the sea, Todd Moorhead will have to pee. So <laughs> I think that, that kind of just happened wherever we went. Well, we've gotten oh. very familiar very quickly. Justin, yes, how, about a, how about a comical moment for you, though? I understand you were the driver. Maybe that's the is that, scene. Is that real enough for everyone? Is that uh, Plenty real. I think people are getting very well acquainted with what it was like for us to make this film. Uh, you know, I mean, being being the driver, you know, if you've ever been in Israel, you, you know that uh, it is not easy to find a parking spot. So trying to take your, your van and find a spot at the end of every day, some long days, uh, was not one of the more fun parts of my job, but yeah. we managed and, and we had some good times, <laughs> of course, traveling around the Holy Land and seeing things that you probably wouldn't normally see on a, a typical right. uh, biblical tour. Justin, describe this movie and the goals that you set up going into it in less than 30 seconds. That's cruel. <laughs> that's, yeah, Do that's, it now. that's challenging. Come on, 30 seconds. Yeah, well, uh, we made a film to help people get beneath the surface of the conflict to find out what's really going on uh, between Israelis and Palestinians so that they can get in touch with the people on the ground and, and find out what are the challenges. Uh we made the film really because we felt that there were other films that had been made that were not presenting a fair and mm-hmm. honest and balanced perspective on the conflict. And we felt that there needed to be a response to that, a, a better yeah. uh, perspective that provides uh, both sides uh, in a fair way. And uh, I think we accomplished that. Well, of course, we'll let the audience decide, <laughs> uh, you being one of them. Right. So. Well, I was privileged to watch the film and enjoyed that preview tremendously. Let me ask you, Todd. I noticed that in a number of shots, Palestinians in particular preferred to be uh, off camera or they're walking away from the camera. How difficult was it to get people to agree to be questioned on camera? Did they have to sign a release form? 
what was that process like? Yeah, the, the, the man on the street interviews where we would just go and some, we did them both in Israel um, and the Palestinian territories. And those interviews, it was hard because you have to get somebody to be on camera. And a lot of people wanted to talk, though, but they didn't want to be on camera or they would allow us to film from the back of their head and showing me ask the questions. And we noticed that they actually really wanted to have their voice heard. And it was like, a, you know, some didn't care at all. And others were, you know, um, very fearful that it could get in the wrong hand. So they took the precautions. Of course, people, you know, there's plenty that said no. Um, the hardest part was getting um, a Palestinian woman to do an interview. And, and, we, and we couldn't yeah. because the cultural thing. So that was the hardest part. But uh, we noticed that the guys wanted to talk and wanted their um, voices heard. Yeah. Pastor Greg Laurie has seen hope in the Holy Land, and he describes the film as thought-provoking, sometimes heartbreaking, and ultimately hopeful. We're talking to the two guys behind that film today, Todd Moorhead and Justin Crone. Justin, how did you go about selecting whom you spoke with? Todd has already tipped his hand and said some of these were happenstance as you go, as you're walking. Were most of the conversations like that, or were most of them prearranged? Uh, what, yeah, what I, I would say that probably 80% of, of our interviews were prearranged. And so it was just a matter of trying to find the right people to speak with. That is a it was an incredibly challenging process because, you know, some people, you, they don't know you. So they're, they're of course, they're going to question, like, where are you going to go with this film? What are you going to do with my interview? Um, but we just did a bunch of research, asked a lot of questions of, of people we know. And I really feel like God led us to the right people. I, yes. I really could not be happier with uh, who we ended up having the opportunity to speak with, which ended up really being, I think, probably about 20, 25 people. Uh, who you'll see interviewed in this film, uh, some very short, others a little bit longer, who who were some of our main people who helped provide the insight and information that we were asking questions about. But yeah, I really do feel like God uh, led us to the right people and couldn't be happier about it. I, I noticed, uh, Todd, that you guys uh, covered a lot of ground in the film, everything from uh, you know Israel's ancient history to its founding as a modern nation to the wars they've been through, the intifadas and so on, and, you know, this boycott and divest uh, movement and so on. How did you narrow the scope to what you did? There was so much to talk about. I, that, that almost had to have been frustrating. That was really frustrating. What we wanted to do different than the other films was give better context, because some of the other films that Justin mentioned that we felt that didn't honestly portray what was going on. They start, let's say, with 1948 or even 1967, and they don't give a broad scope of history. So we are trying to find that balance of how do we, how do we show the history of this land and who's been there, giving the only the information people need and no more. And it was really hard, and it took a team, and I think we had a good team. So I, I think we landed on a really good narrative. I, uh, I noticed that a number of the answers were that you received as you're interviewing people were just positively outrageous, you know, way, way off the, off the scope of true biblical reality or, you know, just insightful, sometimes hateful even. I have to imagine at times it was your greatest challenge of the day to just shut up and not speak back, you know, truth. Oh, you nailed it. The hardest interview I did was with a Palestinian liberation theologian. And yes. I could have argued every 15 seconds and I just had to keep my mouth shut 
my job wasn't to argue, it's to hear his point. But I, I think some healthy argument and, and debate is good. And I was trying to balance that, and it was very difficult for me. Singer Aaron Schust calls Hope in the Holy Land an incredibly honest, balanced, and insightful look into the complicated yet critically important drama unfolding in the Holy Land today. A must-watch. The duo that created the film joins us today on The Land and the Book. You just heard Todd Moorhead. We're also here with Justin Crone. Let me ask you both, starting with Justin, what's your biggest takeaway from the project? What do you, you know, walk <laughs> around with still? You, you saw it recently again on the big screen, Justin. Yeah, it always depends uh, when, when I see it. There's, there's so much complexity. There's so many layers uh, to the conflict. But, you know, I, I think for me that I come away with is that it's really about people. Um, we went into this film with the challenge of if your theology does not lead you to love your enemy and your neighbor, then mm. something's wrong with your theology. Yeah. And so everything we were doing was really through that lens of how can we better understand and relate to the people who are different from us, who we may not naturally resonate with. And just the learning the process of loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, and finding that these are real people who have real stories, people who matter deeply to God. And I think the biggest takeaway there for me would be is that both Jews and Arabs deeply matter to God, and he's got plans and purposes for both peoples. Todd, how would you assess your feeling of indifference toward the Palestinians? We mentioned that up front. Before you shot the film versus after? Yeah, uh, it's hard to say, and I say it in the movie, but I kind of saw them as an enemy. And the reason is, is because I love the Jewish people so much that knowing that the Palestinians are their enemy, it's like the enemy of my friend is my enemy. So that's how I felt about them. And of course, I had some friends. I had very few Palestinian friends, but talk in large scope here. And during the process, and now after the film, I can say that I have a heart for the Palestinian people. I have a newfound fresh love for them based on scripture first, and it's growing. And I'm excited of the journey that God has me on in the continued journey and the continued journey that people get to live, you know, get to see in the hope in the Holy Land. Um, I hope I can help other people in the same struggles. Yeah. Let me ask you, uh, what are some of the more encouraging responses that you have received from anybody who's seen the film so far? Yeah. I, a lot of people are just saying like, wow, I never knew that. I never, I never saw that. Um, I, I think it's providing a lot of clarity for people. I think it's, it's also challenging people to ask questions that maybe they wouldn't typically ask, which is like, what is God's heart for the Palestinians? Yeah. And uh, I just, I think people are finding it to be incredibly transcendent in many mm -hmm. ways. I think a lot of the lessons of this film, although they, of course, the film is, is about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the people there, there are a lot of universal lessons to it um, that apply to where we're at today. And I think that's also been a big takeaway for people. You know, as I watch the film, I'm saying to myself, boy, this is so powerful. And none of the tough questions are being sidestepped. They're all being addressed squarely. How now do you take this finished product and make sure that it just doesn't play in a bunch of pro-Israel churches on a Sunday evening? How, how do you make sure that it reaches a broader audience uh, Palestinian people, uh, Jewish secular people. Uh, how do we do that? Yeah, I, I'll say that's that's one of our biggest challenges. 
And I would say anybody listening right now, if you have friends who live in the Holy Land, if you have friends who live in the Middle East, you need to tell them about this movie. That's probably the only way that they're going to hear about it. Uh, we, we can advertise as much as we possibly can through social media, but really at the end of the day, it's word of mouth. Uh, it's people who see it, who believe that the message is a message that needs to be heard and seen, um, passing it on to their friends and neighbors, wherever they may be. Todd, I'm wondering if in your many conversations in the Palestinian territories, there wasn't a moment at which your spirit just broke. You felt a, a sadness and a heaviness that was just uh, almost too much. Um, I, I felt that very much on one particular day. And, you know, I felt that after a certain interview with a, a liberation theologian, Christian, and I felt that after hearing so much darkness from that side of hate, mm-hmm. um, those are two different things. Some of the man on the street interviews had a lot of hate involved. And then I had an official interview with a Palestinian liberation theologian. I was very depressed after those. And they were the darkest times of my experience in the production because I felt like (laughs) this is not hopeful and this is not what I see scripture saying at all. Hmm. Not even close. You know, when I watch the movie and I'm sitting there watching video clips of of little Palestinian children with toy rifles in their hands, uh, shooting at Israelis, supposedly, video games in which they're killing uh, Jews. When you see the the hatred, and, and certainly there's, you know, nobody's clean on either side, and you see how deep-rooted it is, my conclusion was, this is so deep-rooted, it's so entrenched, the only hope for this is Jesus. That's the only hope. And, you know, I I wasn't necessarily, you know, pre-planning that. I wasn't trying to be pastoral and reach for an application. But, Justin, that's what came at me. Yeah, I'm I'm glad it did. We we don't push that message really hard in the film. I mean, it's definitely alluded to. uh, I mean, you see two believers towards the end of the film uh, who make it very clear that if it wasn't for the gospel, we would not be loving each other right now. And uh, I, I think... It, it's really the gospel. It's it's the message of forgiveness. It's the message of seeing that the other is created in the image of God and deserves to be treated uh, with dignity and respect. Um, that's really going to drive the prospects for peaceful coexistence ahead. And uh, so, yeah, if that's what you got from the film, that's awesome. That's uh, what we would hope that the viewers would see. Justin, how can listeners view the film and spread the word? Yeah, so go to our website, and uh, you'll be able to access, beginning May 14th, information there for how you can watch it on demand. You could also uh, purchase the uh, Blu-ray as well. Hope in the Holy Land is featured, a link there at our website, thelandandthebook.org, and we certainly urge you to check it out. Well, Todd, thanks for joining us. Todd Moorhead and Justin Crone as well. Appreciate your work in Hope in the Holy Land. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, John. It was fun to be on your program and a pleasure. Hey, Charlie Dyer's coming up next. You'll want to stick around for a look at your questions from the Bible next. One of the greatest gifts of the Internet is Google and search engines like it that bring us the answers to our many questions. But you don't always find the answer to your specific Bible question online. It's tough sometimes. 
Where can you find a reliable answer? Well, that's what this next segment is all about. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, former pastor, author, and frequent Israel traveler, and he welcomes your questions anytime. You can email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie, a big stack of questions as always. Uh, There are, and that's great. And here's our first for the day from Casey, who is puzzled by the description of the New Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, John says the city will have 12 gates, three per wall, each guarded by at least one angel against anyone unclean or detestable or false. But he also says the gates will never shut. I'm curious as to what the point of the gates is when at this time all the unrighteous will be in the lake of fire and sin will have been eradicated. Do you see it as more symbolic? Yeah, well, I'd start this way. It's a great question. I don't always have a great answer to go along with it since God, in this case, doesn't provide us with enough details. Now, it's possible that since the New Jerusalem is in existence right now with evil still present, that the gates are used to keep out fallen angels. However, any suggestion like that, well, it's just speculation. We're just not told. But I do have something on a positive side to add. I do believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to see what John described, and it'll make perfect sense, including those ever-open pearly gates to this amazing (laughs) new city of Jerusalem. Perhaps the key is to understand the gates never being closed reminds us that our access to God's presence will always be available. You know, so much in Genesis, uh, when Genesis begins, it was darkness. There was water covering the earth. Uh, The entrance of sin came into God's creation. Death came into God's creation. We were expelled from the garden to keep us from eating the tree of life. Well, all of that's going to be eliminated. In the New Jerusalem, it says there's no night. It says the sea is no more. Death is swallowed up in victory. The curse is removed forever. And we again have access to the tree of life and the presence of God. So I can't be more specific, but I do believe when we get there, it'll make perfect sense. In the meantime, though, we just have to wait. Eric asks, which study Bibles do you use? Is it beneficial to have a net study Bible? And which Bible translations do you most often use, Charlie? Uh, you know, I think of my shelf in the, in the office on, on those study Bibles. My favorite is the NIV study Bible. I like the notes. I like the cross-references. Now, I have the one with the 1984 edition of the NIV, and I also have a copy of the New American Standard Study Bible, which has those same NIV study notes in it. Now, in addition, I have the Ryrie Study Bible, the MacArthur Study Bible. Though I don't use them quite as much, I also have on my shelf the Schofield Study Bible. That was the original Study Bible, by the way. Mm -hmm. The Spurgeon Study Bible, the Archaeological Study Bible, the Life Essential Study Bible, and uh, I could run out of breath. There's still more I could mention. But regarding the Net Study Bible, I think it's a great resource. Now, in terms of translations, he asked, I personally use the 1984 NIV and the New American Standard most often, but I also have uh, a lot of other translations I use, the Christian Standard Bible, the ESV, the New King James Version, and on occasion, the New Living Translation, and I find all of them helpful. Chris wants to know, I understand that the numbering of the chapters and verses was not in the original inspired scriptures, but could you provide some background to how the current numbering system was established in both the Old and New Testaments? Since it was not a part of the original scriptures, is it possible that adding the numbers was not God's will? What do you think? Yeah, well, some of the divisions in the Hebrew Bible started rather early. In fact, there are markers indicating paragraph divisions in the Dead Sea Scrolls of Isaiah. That dates back to the 2nd century B.C., but those divisions aren't the same as what we have in our Bible. The Hebrew Scriptures were divided into chapters and verses that we generally see today around the mid-15th century. 
Uh, the New Testament chapters and verses were, well, those were added around the 16th century. So the purpose for adding the divisions relates in part to how the Bible was produced. You know, in the time of Jesus, the Hebrew Bible was a collection of scrolls. However, when books actually began to be developed, the individual scrolls were eventually bound together, and that made finding specific locations to be more difficult. So chapter and verse divisions really came about for two reasons. It made it easier to find a specific portion of the Bible, and it made it easier for someone to read aloud that portion of Scripture. Remember, most people didn't have Bibles. They were read aloud during services, and that helped the person who was reading know where a section began and ended. Now, I don't believe the chapter and verse divisions are against God's will. They they simply made it easier to find and read the Word of God. But they can sometimes cause artificial divisions in the Bible where no break was intended. Uh, in fact, it's interesting to help resolve that. Tyndall House publishers actually developed a new approach to Bible reading they call Immerse. It's a six-volume work, and they've removed the chapter and verse notations. They've taken away subject headings, and they've also rearranged the books of the Bible in a more chronological order. Now, I don't see it replacing the traditional chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles, but it can allow someone to read the Bible much like one would have read it through in the past. Uh, Anyway, it's something that's worth checking out. Hope you're enjoying our question and answer segment on today's edition of The Land and the Book. We are. (laughs) I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. We'll take another question, this one taking us to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 2, where the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Let us go, we pray thee, to the Jordan. And in verse 5, the axe head fell into the water. Now, was the water mentioned in this verse the Jordan River or a well? Yeah, I believe the water that's mentioned there is the Jordan River. Now, I say that because of the context. In in that chapter, in verse 2, it says they plan to go to the Jordan where they can get a pole, that is building materials, to build a place to live. And indeed, uh, there was a lot of stuff that grew around the Jordan River. In verse 4, it says the group, including Elijah, went to the Jordan and began to cut down trees. So they went there, and that's where they were starting to work using this axe. And then verse 5 says, as one was cutting down a tree, the axe head fell into the water. So in the immediate context, the water has to be the Jordan River, along whose banks these trees were growing. Uh, The Jordan is a rather muddy and dirty river, especially as one moves downstream away from the Sea of Galilee. And that's one of the reasons, remember, Naaman the leper was so upset when Elisha told him to go dip seven times in the Jordan River. It's the dirty river. So once the axe head fell into that muddy water, from a human perspective, it seemed to be lost forever. And that's what made this miracle so special. We were honored to get an email from Michael who says, I live across the United States as a long-distance truck driver. Thank you for your show. Well, thank you, Michael. He takes us to Matthew 5, verse 18. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by any means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. In the context of this verse, Christ seems to be saying that he's not doing away with the law and we should still follow it while on earth. If he is the word and we will be like him in heaven, will there be a need for a copy of the book of the law as we now have it on earth? In other words, will there be any Bibles in heaven? Yeah, there's a couple questions there. So let me answer that second one first. Uh, we're, We're not given enough information in the Bible to know if there will be copies of the Word of God in heaven. Uh, we do know the Word of God will be present on earth during the millennial kingdom. I say that because Isaiah 2 says, many will come and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
Uh, so there will be uh, some reference to the Word of God, some knowledge coming out from Jerusalem uh, in connection with God's Word. But in eternity, well, we'll be in the direct presence of God the Father, you know, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We'll have resurrected bodies and fully renewed minds, so it's possible we'll simply know God and His Word in a totally unique and, and transforming way. But let me go to the first uh, issue you asked. Uh, in Matthew 5.18, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was explaining the real meaning of God's commands in the law. And as he does, it becomes clear no one apart from him would ever able to keep that law. Uh, he was the fulfillment of the law in every respect. In fact, he says in there, be ye therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Jesus accomplished that, but the law shows all of us are sinners. And that's why Paul could say in Romans 10 that Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, our righteousness comes from our faith in Christ, not from trying to obey the law. And as a result, since Jesus fulfilled God's law requirements, we're not required to offer animal sacrifices. We don't have to follow many of the other aspects of the law that Jesus perfectly fulfilled. Barbara wants to know, are the words, let God prevail, found in Scripture? Uh, yeah, I couldn't think of a passage that has those words as a direct quote. But So this is one of those cases where I did go online. I, I found the words <laughs> are associated with a message by the president of the Mormon church. So uh, it relates more to uh, that president of the Mormon church, not to the word of God. Now, in terms of the Bible, uh, the closest I could think of was Paul's quote of Psalm 51, 4 in, in Romans 3. Paul wrote, that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Uh, but that's not exactly the same as let God prevail, which I couldn't find in the Bible. Yeah. One last question we'll squeeze in from Bernard. He says, I noticed that Paul did not preach the gospel to the people on the island of Malta. I assume it's because of the language barrier. Yes? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, Luke actually doesn't tell us whether or not Paul preached to those people, but the language barrier wouldn't have been a problem since Paul evidently had the gift of tongues. He mentions that in 1 Corinthians 14. He could speak other languages. We also know Paul and Luke had a ministry of healing while in Malta. You know, Paul healed the chief official's father, uh, while the rest of the sick, it says, came to be cured, and the Greek word used there, therapeuo, has the idea of receiving medical treatment. So it looks like Paul and Luke both were busy meeting the physical needs of people, and I can't imagine that they didn't also share the gospel during those times. Now, Luke may just not simply have mentioned it, since uh, that wasn't the purpose of his describing what was happening there. But uh, knowing the life of Paul, uh, he was sharing the gospel everywhere he could. Thanks, Charlie. It could be that you have the luxury of listening to The Land and the Book on a radio station. Good for you. But you've got friends who don't get the program in their area. They can still listen via the podcast. Let them know about it, won't you? At thelandandthebook.org. I'm John Geiger, and this is The Land of the Book. Thanks so much for joining us. Got a question for you. Can you put your finger on the saddest day of your life? To date, what has been the saddest moment? What snapshot immediately pops into your mind? Well, we're going to head to a rather uh, interesting devotional coming up that takes us to the book of Ezekiel. Charlie Dyer will bring us to the 24th chapter and a reflection that I think you're going to remember for a long, long time. Before we let him at that, though, let's take in this Holy Land experience. Another testimony from somebody who's traveled to the Holy Land and now brings this to our attention. Hi, I'm Jackie, and uh, this has been a wonderful experience for me. I've traveled a great deal, and uh, this was a really important trip for me. And 
I just appreciate all the minute things we've learned. Um, we went into the Groovin Valley and down in a cave and saw the oil press, the way that uh, the early Jews had to make oil from the olives. And I'd also had a lesson in a small group at home where we had done that. So it was really fun to see the actual you know, oil press and do that. And the olive oil press and the word Gethsemane have the same kind of meaning. And we always hear about the Garden of Gethsemane, but that was a new way to think about it. And it's just been a wonderful experience. Thanks so much for that Holy Land experience. You know, if somebody were to ask me, what's the saddest day in your life, John? I'm not sure how I would answer. Certainly there have been a number of sad funerals I've been to. I suspect the saddest day of my life I haven't experienced yet. But uh, all of that talk is just a bit on the sobering side, Charlie, as we uh, hand things over to you for your devotional. Yeah, this one's in a minor key today. And uh, it starts with the realization that Americans, uh, those of us who uh, grew up here, are poor students of history and geography. It's just a fact of life. We're, we're a forward-focused nation, but it also means we don't spend much time looking in the rearview mirror, uh, nor do we pay much attention to what's happening in the rest of the world. We all know the world's shrinking. You know, globalization and interconnectivity are tying the planet together in ways our parents and grandparents could never have imagined, and yet we still don't have a good grasp of history or geography, even when that information helps us understand current events in a larger context. I hope you'll see what I mean today as we visit the prophet Ezekiel on the saddest day of his life. Our journey takes us to Tel Aviv. No, not the one in Israel. This one's in Iraq, south of the ancient city of Babylon. The name's a transliteration of an Akkadian name, which means Hill of the Flood. The site was once a town that had likely been destroyed by a flood. The Babylonian army brought back Jewish captives from Jerusalem and forced them to settle on the site. Tel Aviv, the hill of the flood, ultimately became the home of the prophet Ezekiel and his wife. Our arrival in Tel Aviv comes during one of the darkest times in Ezekiel's life. It happens to be the very day the Babylonian army began its final siege of Jerusalem, 500 miles to the west. The date's so significant, it's mentioned four times in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 25, Jeremiah 39, Jeremiah 52, and here in Ezekiel 24. It was the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day, January 15, 588 B.C. On this cold, dark January day, history and geography collided in tiny Tel Aviv and in mighty Jerusalem. God's word must have brought a shiver to Ezekiel as he huddled by the fire in his small village. Son of man, with one blow I am about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. Yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. What a strange word from God. God warned Ezekiel that death was near. And when it came, Ezekiel had to pretend as if nothing was wrong. But who was about to die? Ezekiel shared this strange message with the people in the morning, and then in the evening he recorded the sudden, sad fulfillment of the prophecy. In the evening, my wife died. Ezekiel was only 35 years old at the time, and his wife was probably about the same age. They were in the prime of life, and there was no indication of any physical problems. In the morning, Ezekiel was a loving husband, 
and by nightfall, he was a widower. Ezekiel's message and its dramatic fulfillment had a profound impact on the people. The next day, they crowded around the prophet and asked him, Won't you tell us what these things have to do with us? The message was that they would soon experience the same sadness he now felt. The city of Jerusalem, which that same day had gone under siege, would eventually be captured. The temple would be destroyed, and their sons and daughters living there would be killed. And these captives, living in the land of the victorious Babylonians, would need to pretend that nothing was wrong. You will do as I have done, Ezekiel predicted. These are the kind of stories that, in our human nature, we wish weren't in the Bible or in real life. Why does God permit his children to experience pain and suffering? Why does his plan for our lives include times of sadness and sorrow? The lessons from the life of Ezekiel are lessons we dare not miss. In this account, God pulls back the veil of history and geography and lets us see what's happening behind the scenes. Ezekiel's personal loss and his response to it weren't just a random tragedy of life. They were essential for communicating God's message on what was about to take place in Jerusalem. And as a result, the people did listen to what Ezekiel had to say. I want to focus on two lessons from this event in Ezekiel's life that I think are crucial for us today. First, we need to recognize that being a child of God doesn't excuse us from life's hardships and heartaches. Only in heaven has God promised to wipe away all tears. The Bible is full of examples of righteous men and women who, like Ezekiel, were led by God through dark valleys as part of His will for their lives. Second, Remember that nothing happens in life by mere chance, not even tragedy. We might not understand why life unfolds as it does, but God has promised to work all things together for good to those who love Him. And when times of tragedy, difficulty, and sorrow come, God calls on us to walk by faith and remember that He is good all the time. Paying attention to the history and geography of this story in the life of Ezekiel helps me understand how God can even use life's tragedies to deliver a powerful message to those around us. The specific circumstances of our struggles will vary, but the God of grace and comfort remains the same. This truth all came together for me on a visit to the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. In the museum is a plaque written to memorialize a young woman whose life had been tragically cut short by death. On the plaque is a poem written by the woman's sister. The first part of this poem expresses the deep pain and sadness of this surviving sister. Alas, how vain are feeble words to tell what once she was and why I loved so well. None else but he who formed the heart can know how great her worth or how extreme my woe. But then... The sister looked beyond her sorrow and found a time and place in history that helped put her pain in perspective and that gave her hope. Blessed Calvary, on thy crimson top I see sufferings and death with life and love agree. Justice severe and smiling mercy join, and through the gloom we see the glory shine. Are you struggling today? Then remember Calvary. God understands your pain. He watched his own son die an agonizing death. And Friday's death 
was eclipsed by Sunday's resurrection, revealing that he can indeed work all things together for good, so that even through the gloom, you can see his glory shine. Thank you for that great picture, Charlie, from the life of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 24. You know, from time to time, the land and the book team gets out. We uh, kind of take the program on the road. Maybe you have wanted to have Charlie Dyer and our team come to your church, your event. We do some recordings of uh, features that are actually used in future broadcasts. If you'd like to do that, email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Do stop by the website, thelandandthebook.org. I'm John Gager for the team here at The Land and the Book, which is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Have a great week, and come back next time for more of The Land and the Book. <laughs>